The US 10-year Treasury bond yield jumped overnight to a 16-year high. On talk, the Fed will have to hike again. And the commodity currencies are sensitive to China's slowing economy. And they're weak again. That's coming up in our five things in five minutes. And then in an extended bonus deep dive interview on the big news of the week in China, ANZ Group's chief economist Richard Yetzinger looks at why China can't seem to stimulate its way out of trouble this time around. Destiny, demographics and debt are all quite limiting factors and suggest that policy will need to be pushing against some pretty powerful forces working in the other direction. Number one, the key 10-year Treasury yield jumped six basis points to its highest level since November 2007 overnight, after minutes of the last Fed meeting were released and showed some members saw, quote, significant upside risks to inflation, which could require further tightening of monetary policy, unquote. Here's ANZ's head of G3 Economics, Brian Martin, talking to me from London this morning. The minutes did seem to assume that economic activity would be slowing down or be that slowdown gradual. Uh, what we have seen in the economic data this week is that that isn't the case. Uh, retail sales have been extremely strong. July industrial production growth uh, rebounded sharply. The Philly Fed manufacturing business outlook today uh, was up sharply again. And I think the bond markets, looking at the Fed minutes, looking at the data and saying it's a bit of a disconnect here at the moment, and therefore bond yields are rising. Number two. So could the Fed actually hike next month? It's getting closer, as Brian explains. I don't think the Fed would go on one month's data. And the July data have been strong. There's no doubt about that. I think they want to wait and see the next round of data we get for August when that starts to come out really in earnest, uh, starting with non-farm payrolls on Friday week and then from there. And they want to see how the labour market's performing, how inflation's performing and a whole raft of data that they'll get before the meeting, which is on the 20th and 21st of September. And they'll incorporate that in their assessment. If the data for August is very strong, I think there'd have to be an active debate about whether further monetary tightening is required. Number three. So all this talk of higher US interest rates has strengthened the US dollar, along with China's very weak data. That has weakened the commodity currencies sharply this week. I spoke to ANZ's head of FX research, Marjabin Zaman, just after the Aussie dollar fell through 64 US cents yesterday afternoon. China's currency is also under heavy pressure. We see recent activity data in China have missed expectations and the lack of confidence is driving a weaker yuan and as a result, flowing into the Aussie dollar. Second point is also the commodity side of things. That also factors into the way risk currencies move. Finally, the U.S. exceptionalism story seems to continue. This week, we saw strong U.S. retail sales, housing starts overnight, and industrial production data as well. Now, this U.S. economic resilience for now at least points to a possibility that Fed rate cut expectations might be priced out even further in 2024, which is obviously supporting a strong USD. Number four. Now, the Aussie is just back over 64 U.S. cents this morning. But yesterday, I got a hammering after the weaker-than-expected jobs data in Australia. Here's ANZ Senior Australian Economist Adelaide Timbrell. 
while weaker than expected, the softness in the labour market data does fit neatly with the sentiment expressed in the Reserve Bank's most recent set of minutes, which noted twice that the labour market might be at a turning point. Our forward indicators for the labour market also show that we're likely to see more to come in terms of increases in the unemployment rate. Number five. Now, one thing to watch today and next week is whether the People's Bank of China has to intervene to stop China's currency from falling. One tool the PBOC might use is something called the counter-cyclical factor. Maja Bin Zaman explains. The authorities have been trying to stabilise the currency by introducing the counter-cyclical factor since late June. That's the CCF. Now, the PBOC, they tried to set the fixing more stronger than expected with the largest CCF since late last year, but they've also been allowing the UN to adjust slightly. So this is a sign that the authorities are prioritizing the need to support growth at the expense of the currency. So, you know, we do see near-term weakness uh, in the CNH. Thanks, it's Marjabin Zaman there. Well, now it's time for our extended bonus deep dive interview on the huge news this week that China's economy is slowing down. I asked Richard Yetzenger why China's economy is slowing. Well, there's two schools of thought. One is the the more temporary school, which says some things have happened through the pandemic, which have deeply affected confidence in China. There's another school of thought, which is closer to what I subscribe to, which argues, look, there's partly destiny about this. China is a middle income economy and growth in middle income economies tends to slow quite a lot. Not just destiny, but debt and demographics that all you put all of those three things together. And while the timing was always a question, the end outcome never in question. Uh, China was always going to slow materially, 6% not sustainable for an economy with those sorts of characteristics. It just seems to have happened in, in 2023, and I expect will continue into 2024. That also says China can do some things on policy, but they're probably not going to entirely change the game. There's been stimulus before whenever China slowed. Why hasn't it gotten traction this time around? Look, there's probably been a hundred different policy steps in all honesty in a, in a range of different areas. It's just that about 98 or 99 of them have been what you'd call more structural, more in the economy in an underlying sense, and less in terms of the stimulatory policy, macro policy that we might normally think about. You know, uh, uh, we, we recently had cuts in the seven-day reverse repo rate and the one-year medium-term lending facility rate. Also next week, there are announcements around the one-year prime rate and the five-year prime rate. The market expectation is for more cuts there. But these are modest in the context of the other policy steps, the more structural policy steps, and obviously very modest in the context of the deterioration in the macro news that we've seen over 2023. So clearly there's a lot of uh, debt in the Chinese economy and also the currency is under pressure. How much of our factors there that are limiting the People's Bank of China's ability to respond, and and also the, the government with fiscal policy, its ability to stimulate. Fiscal stimulus is, is constrained, but I suspect more by concerns about simply building up more leverage in the economy. And I use the word simply, it's not that simple, but I think that there is an overriding constraint there, as well as I, I suspect there is, are some concerns around moral hazard, particularly within the public sector itself. As I look to rescue some of the local government financing vehicles or provincial governments themselves, um, this is a sector I've been warning about raising leverage concerns for a long period of time. You know, I, I probably want to be cautious about how much I help there. The currency itself also, at least on the radar, it doesn't seem to me the price action in the currency would be sufficient 
to limit policy action in and of itself, but it's probably a consideration that China is aware that runaway currency weakness is is uh, is not going to be stabilizing. And so they're keen to ensure if there's depreciation, it's relatively orderly. Is China falling into a sort of a middle income trap? With hindsight, we might have more clarity around that. To, to some degree, the slowdown in China's GDP should have been expected based on its level of development. If some people would use the term middle income trap, I would just use the term phase because there's no reason that this has to be a trap for China. You can still grow uh, at low single digit rates at maybe 3%. And if you do that consistently, your economy can still develop very substantially over long periods of time. In fact, it's avoiding the problems that is typically what sets successful economies apart rather than growing particularly quickly. Usually for a middle-income country to jump into a high-income one, consumers need to open their wallets to spend to create a consumption and services economy. Why isn't that happening for China? Pre-pandemic, yes, consumption was contributing more to economic output and, and China was on something of a path towards a more sustainable, domestically driven growth story. But over the course of the pandemic and post-pandemic, the surprise for us this year has been how little that has occurred. And in fact, there's some evidence, in fact, it's regressed. There is a role for policy in that. By the same token, destiny, demographics and debt are all quite limiting factors and suggest that policy will need to be pushing against some pretty powerful forces working in the other direction. ANZ Group Chief Economist Richard Yetzenga there. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was 5 and 5 with ANZ for Friday, August the 18th. Have a great weekend. This podcast was recorded for publication on behalf of ANZ. All associated disclosures and disclaimers can be viewed using the link in your media player or the ANZ website through which you access this podcast. All care has been taken to report the views of ANZ Research in the creation of this podcast, but as an independent host, any differing interpretations are strictly mine and not ANZ's. Feel free to contact your ANZ point of contact with any questions.